You're listening to the Hui Kala Baptist Church Podcast coming to you from the heart of Honolulu. Hui Kala is a committed family of faith that loves Jesus and loves one another. Grab your Bible and prepare for preaching from the Word of God from Pastor Anthony King. got your Bible handy, turn to Ephesians chapter 5, if you would, this morning, Ephesians chapter 5. This is part two of three uh, of a passage of scripture we've been going through. We've been uh, studying through the book of Ephesians verse by verse uh, since the beginning of last year. Uh, and so I've, I mapped out the, uh, the roadmap for the rest of the year. It looks like we're going to finish this up around September time frame, maybe this year, uh, as we get through this. And so uh, that's a conservative estimate, I guess you could say, uh, because we get to a passage like today, and you can't do it justice in just one uh, one week. We just can't. And so we're going to spend at least, uh, I say at least three weeks, uh, take a look at this passage of Scripture. Uh, this passage of Scripture, uh, last week when I read it, I almost felt like the air in the room went out because people are hearing words that uh, you just don't say in polite society today, like the husband is the head of the wife. That just makes people nervous. Uh, that causes people to be uncomfortable. Uh, when you begin to say things like the wife should be into, in submission to her husband, this makes people feel awkward. Uh, and this begins to conjure up uh, all types of feelings and emotions that we have uh, regarding the good and the bad that we've seen uh, in marriage relationships. And so today we're uh, really gonna take a look at a biblical uh, view of it. Last week we took a look at a biblical view of gender roles. Uh, and again, it was one of those things we looked at it very biblically. And I think most people walked away from that going, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I, I even had some folks who said, as you're reading through the passage of scripture, I immediately got tense, I, I got angry. I had folks who said, I just saw the title of the message in the bulletin and I didn't like it. I wanted to get up and leave. I just wanna encourage you with this. Just hang in there. I promise you it's okay. Uh, it's important to understand too, Hui Kala Baptist Church is a Bible preaching church, a Bible believing church. That means we believe that this is the Bible, the word of God. This is the authority for everything that we do. This is it. This is God's word. And if God's word says it and we don't like it, we need to change what we like. It's important to understand, anytime my heart doesn't line up with the Bible, you need to understand your heart is wrong. This is the standard. And so we as a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church just want to stick to what the Bible says. It might not be popular today. Uh, some people might say that it's outdated. We would say that the Bible's not outdated or old-fashioned. We would say that the Bible is, get this word, timeless. It applies to every generation. Uh, God never changes. God's word never changes. The Bible says God's word is forever settled in heaven. And for the rest of my life and the rest of yours, God's word is done. It's settled. It's finished. We don't get to add or take away from it. We don't get to put our own spin on it. It's done. And if this earth exists for another 10,000 years, God's word will not change its stand. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing, and we can find great comfort in the fact that God's word is unchanging. Ephesians chapter five is where we're at this morning. Ephesians chapter five, we're gonna start in verse number 21. We took a look at last week, and again, just by way of review a little bit, this verse, first verse here, verse 21, is the key to a healthy marriage and healthy home. It's a key to understanding healthy biblical gender roles. Verse number 21 says that we should be submitting ourselves one to another in the fear of God. And the idea is mutual submission lays a solid foundation for God's plan. Verse 22, wives, submit unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. 
Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing that should be holy and without blemish. So ought men also to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord is church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Again, our view of this is a biblical view. Uh, we do not believe in traditional gender roles. The word tradition leaves the idea that uh, it's a pattern that we follow just because we've always done that. Uh, and again, we're not a traditional church, we're a biblical church. And so because of that, we have a not traditional view of marriage or a traditional view of gender roles, a traditional view of the home. We have a biblical view of all of those things. Again, this is not, uh, uh, we don't talk about stuff like this. Again, we're just going verse by verse through the Bible here. We can't skip this passage of scripture, although it would be very convenient to do so. As a pastor, it'd be very easy for me to say, well, you kind of get the idea as far as what that's talking about. Let's go to chapter six and talk about the armor of God. That would be great for me. I'd love that because you can just dance around this stuff and act like it's not even there, right? But that's not helping anybody. And, and if you leave here today upset, please understand you're being upset with what God's guidelines he has set out, but God's guidelines are not set to upset you or to cause you any grief. God's guidelines are given to maximize your joy. That's the beauty of the Bible. People sometimes look at the Bible as constricting or uh, it doesn't let me do what I wanna do or there's so many rules and regulations and guidelines. Hey, look, these are given to you for your protection. If you've ever uh, driven the, the road to Hana before uh, in Maui, man, that's a lot of fun, isn't it? Nobody's ever ridden the road to Hana and said, I wish that stupid guardrail wasn't there. <laughs> Slide, you know, 100 feet down the side of that cliff. That guardrail's keeping me from having a good time, right? Nobody's ever said that. I'm thankful for those things, right? I'd be a little bit nervous. Some of those bridges you go across, I think, you know, I'm a big guy. Will it hold my weight plus this car? I don't know. Uh, but uh, I'm thankful for guideposts. I'm thankful for guardrails. God's word is like that, to guide us into the most joy-filled life that there is. Hey, you don't want to do things God's way. That's fine, but just know it's going to end up miserable. And you say, well, you can't say that. I didn't say it. The Bible said it. The Bible says this, the way of the transgressor is hard. When you go against God's way of doing things, things never work out. And you say, well, it's working out okay for right now. Hey, it's only a matter of time before the wheels come off and this fall apart. And folks who would look at the Bible with a critical eye would say, well, well, Christian marriages don't fare much better. Christian marriages end in divorce and Christian families sometimes have things messed up. But I can tell you this with certainty. 100% of Christian marriages that end in divorce, 100% of Christian marriages that fall apart did not follow these guidelines. Guaranteed, guaranteed. So it's not a matter of the system's broken, it's a matter of we don't never followed the system to begin with. And so if you choose to live 
in opposition to God's plan for the home, it's your prerogative to do that. You, you can do that and nobody's gonna stop you. But I would greatly encourage you to seek God's wisdom because it's only a matter of time before your own plans fall apart. God's plans are always perfect. I can guarantee you that for sure. Also, I wanna say this from the get-go because we are a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church and because we're pa- walking through this passage of Scripture together over the next couple of weeks. We're not talking about this for mere shock value. Uh, we're not talking about this just to stir up the hornet's nest. Uh, we're not trying to do this to, to, to be out there and in your face and stuff like that. We're just preaching through the Bible verse by verse, simple as that. And let me help you with this as well. As you read through the Bible, there will be things that you read that are inflammatory to your own spirit. You know why? Because the Bible says that you and I are sinners. And sinners don't like to be told that they're wrong. Simple as that. I just want to continue on my own way. I want to do my own thing. And I don't want anybody to tell me otherwise. And so even as we read through Scripture, we find things that make us feel uncomfortable. And let me just tell you this. If you're not reading through the Bible and it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, you're not reading closely enough or with the right spirit. Because every time I read the Word of God, I realize I'm not where I need to be. Every time I read the story of Christ and what he did and how he loved people, how he treated people, and how he was bold, but yet at the same time gracious, I realize I got a lot of work to do because I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We've broken God's law. The Bible says that we, are, uh, we are, have sinned against God. There's none righteous, no, not one, that, that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And because of our sin, we stand in opposition to God. Some people believe that everyone is born automatically into God's family. The Bible says the opposite is true. We're all born outside of God's family. That we're born, and the Bible says we're the children of disobedience, children of the devil, children of wrath. We're definitely not born into the family of God automatically. The Bible says from the moment that we come forth from our mother's womb, we begin speaking lies. That from our very earliest existence, we have been sinners. If you don't believe that, I'll introduce you to my 18-month-old Tallulah. She is a great sinner. In great need of a Savior, I'll tell you that for sure. She's a mess. All we have to do is look at children and see from the veriest young age, they're selfish, self-centered, they lie, cheat, steal to get their way. I don't know why, uh, Tallulah had a fit the other day. She's just laying down in the, the living room floor and she starts banging on the, the ground like you would see a, a baby do. And there's nobody around her, nobody messing with her. She starts going, mine, 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 mine. It's like, okay, first of all, you don't have anything. Second of all, nobody's trying to take anything away from you. Nobody's disputing the fact that the air is yours. If you want to take that, go for it. But she was just, mine, 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 mine. It's just like, what the world? Sin. You know the worst part about it is? I'm 41 years old. I'll be 42 next month. But you know what I still do sometimes? Mine, 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 mine. You know why? Because I never grew out of my sin. We think, oh, kids will outgrow their bad behavior. You never outgrow sin. It never goes away. So it must be dealt with because sin makes us enemies with God. And the only way we can make that right is to pay for our sin. Well, how much does it cost? How many good works do I have to do to make my sin go away? That doesn't work either because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The consequences, the penalty, the price of your sin is death. You're gonna die physically one day. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. After that, the judgment, and you'll stand before God one day. That's heavy stuff. And when you stand before God, he's gonna say, hey, look at this laundry list of sin you've done in your whole life. And we might say, well, what about the good stuff that I did? 
God doesn't keep track of those things. He keeps track of your sin, and you're judged according to your sin. And this needs to be paid for. Well, how do I pay for it? Death, eternal death, separation from God in a place called hell. That's the worst news anybody could ever get. My sin and yours has earned us a spot in hell. But there's good news. Okay, sin has to be paid for. Somebody has to die. I can't die for you. I have my own sin to pay for. You can't die for me because you have your own sin to pay for. This church can't pay for anybody's sins. There's not a church in the world that could pay for anybody's sins. There's not enough water in the world to wash away our sins. We have no hope. But what if there was someone who had no sin, who could pay for the sins of the entire world and could die in my place and die in yours? His name is Jesus. And he came to die on the cross, to pay for my sins, to pay for yours, so we don't have to be held responsible for our sin, so we don't have to go to hell, so our sin can be paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Best news you could ever get. You have another way, and his name is Jesus. But you have to receive that payment. You can't force it on somebody. You can't make somebody take that payment. You must choose. I choose to leave my sin behind and to follow Jesus Christ. I choose to accept his payment as forgiveness of my sins. I receive Jesus Christ as my savior. That's the word savior, it's important. That's the only way that you can be forgiven of your sins, that's it. The only way is through Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, you're not 100% sure that when you die that you're going to heaven, please don't leave here without knowing for sure you have an opportunity at the end of the service to be able to, to put your faith in Christ as Savior if you would choose to do that today. And I'm telling you, this would be the best decision you'll ever make in your entire life. But here's the crazy thing about following Jesus is when we follow Jesus, all of our problems don't go away. Sometimes people think that, well, I must be doing it wrong because I'm following Jesus, but I still got problems. Hey, the Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Just because you follow Jesus doesn't make your problems go away. It just makes your problems bearable important to understand that, that when I walk through life and I walk through problems, I'm not walking alone, I'm walking with Jesus Christ, and he is my strength, he is my hope. In marriage today, we're taking a look at the responsibility of the husband, the sacrificial serving husband. Fellas, I'm talking to you. Uh, I remember Angela had been married for probably about a year. We didn't have any type of premarital counseling, we were just kind of making it up as we went, and uh, we made some mistakes and along the way. That's why I think it's important before anybody ever gets married, you need to sit down and go through premarital counseling. Have a pastor sit down and tell you what you're getting into because we had no idea what we're getting into. I just knew, I love you, you love me, let's do this thing forever. And we decided to do it. Uh, man, so foolish, I think, looking back now. But our pastor said, uh, have you uh, had any premarital counseling? We didn't. We were about a year into our marriage. We weren't having major problems. I mean, uh, nothing major, just little stuff come up here and there. And he said, well, let me recommend a book for you. I think, I can't remember the name of the book. I think it was Hidden Keys to a Loving Lasting Marriage or something along those lines. And here's what I said. Yeah, I'm not much of a reader. And he goes, okay, read it anyways. Well, I don't think you heard me. I said, I'm not much of a reader. You know, you know why? Because I'm too macho for that. Like I get out, I, get, I open boxes and I throw the instructions away. You know why? Because I don't read. Simple as that. You ever try that with Ikea furniture? You'll, you'll like look for a bridge to jump off of or something. It's terrible, right? 
oh man. But the idea that I don't read, you know, because I, I can figure stuff out on my own. You know, I'm a quick learner. He says, good, then read this book. It'll be easy for you. Great. So Angela and I start reading through this book together because the pastor told us to. And so I didn't realize this until like 10 years later. But I'm reading through like the first three chapters of this book, and it's all about the husband and what he's done wrong and how he needs to take responsibility for this. And if things are wrong in the marriage, it's his fault. And I read like chapter one, and I was just like, well, that was really harsh. And then I read chapter two, and it's much more the same thing. Well, this is a terrible book. I get to chapter three, and it's just, this is junk. I'm not reading this anymore. You know why? Because it keeps telling me that I'm wrong. I don't like being wrong. And so I never read the book. I found out later that the book used to be two separate books. There was a book to the guy, and there was a book to the ladies. And the author, in his infinite wisdom, put these two books together so that the whole first half of the book is the book to the guys, and the whole second half of the book was the book to the ladies, that if I had just kept reading the book, it would have taken the heat off of me, man. But here's what I realized in that moment. I don't like to be told that I'm wrong. I don't like being told that I need to change. But I really needed to find a new way to do things, God's way. And I want to encourage you with that. Husbands, if you're sitting here today and you feel like you're on the hot seat, just come back next week because we'll be talking about your wife next week, okay? Um, <laughs> And ladies, don't make, up, make some hair appointment next Sunday at 9.30 in the morning, okay? You can't do that. Just, just hear it out, okay? And here's the thing. Just like any other Sunday of the world, if you come to the conclusion that you don't like what I or the Bible has to say, you're welcome to leave and do your own thing, and nobody's going to stop you. You just get to do your own thing but I would greatly encourage you to follow God's biblical pattern for wisdom because it brings the greatest joy in life. That's the idea behind this. I read a quote uh, several years ago. I had it tucked away somewhere. It says, uh, the Western world stands at a great crossroads in its history. It's my opinion that our very survival as a people will depend upon the presence of or absence of masculine leadership in millions of homes. I believe, with everything that's in me, that husbands hold the key to the preservation of the family. It's a heavy statement. Dr. James Dobson made that quote, Focus on the family, phenomenal ministry focused on family, marriage, and stuff like that. You know when James Dobson made that quote? 1980. 1980. 40 years ago, he said, the family is at a crossroads like never before, and the only thing that's going to hold it together is solid male leadership in the home. If it was important 40 years ago, how important do you think it is today? Probably about 40 times more important than it was back then. You see, we live in a society today that wants to blur gender. Gender is a biological fact. We can't get around that. I'm not saying that to be mean or, or harsh or judgmental. It's just simply a biological fact. Simple as that. But with our biology assigned at birth comes a, a role that God has created us to fulfill in his master plan of creation that only I can fulfill and only you can fulfill. It's unique, it's special to you. And again, I don't say that to be inflammatory uh, anyway, I just say it to be biblical. And the problem is when we cast off our God-given identity, we breed confusion. I'll say that again. When we cast off our God-given identity, we breed confusion. I remember uh, Vanderlei, he's uh, 17 years old now. He was probably maybe three years old, and he was sitting on my lap. We were eating Subway in California, 
and a, a woman came in, but she was doing everything that she could in her power to appear as a man, right? everything that she could. And Vanderlei was maybe three, possibly about to turn four, and he, you know, kids have no filter, no idea. He just points and he goes, Dad, is that a him or a her? And I was like, <laughs> Vanderlei, don't say that. And he goes, no, Dad, I'm just asking. I go, Vanderlei, that's not nice. And he goes, I'm not trying to be mean. Is it a him? I said, <laughs> is it a him or a her? And I said, son, we don't talk about stuff like that. And then his question is, <laughs> every three-year-old, why? Because it's not nice. And so he sits there and he goes, I don't want to be mean, Dad, but just tell me. And in his three- or four-year-old mind at that point, it brought confusion. Because even a child can understand that these things are distinctively different. And again, we run into great folly when we allow a seven-year-old to choose their own gender. When you, you see these things on the news, and, oh, you know, when I was seven years old, I liked to play with, with Barbies, you know, and so I must, I always identified as a woman. Hey, look, a child choose their own gender at seven, eight, nine, 17 years old. We run into great folly when we do that, so we need to be careful with that. I remember uh, me and my brother grew up in a house full of, you know, Tonka trucks and bulldozers and stuff like that. Me and my brother would fight and wrestle in the living room uh, like boys should do. And we had a good time. But we went over to my cousin's house, and she had one of those, uh, I don't know if they still make them or not. They had the Barbies on the head with all the little makeup things in front of it. And you do her hair, and there's rubber bands you can put in her hair and stuff like that. And I was enamored by that because we didn't have stuff like that in my house, you know? And so I thought to myself, how cool would Barbie look with a mohawk? And so I found my cousin's scissors, and I gave Barbie a mohawk. And it was awesome <laughs> until my parents found out. And then my cousin found out, and then it was not awesome anymore. But again, had I looked at that situation and go, I was just enamored with Barbie from the time that I was a, a child. You know, again, you run into the great folly of that. And when people don't embrace their God-given roles. You're not rebelling against who you are. You're rebelling against who God is and who God's created you to be. And so it's important to understand that. And again, that's why uh, one of the reasons why we have so much depression in our society today, so much self-hatred, because we haven't fully embraced who God has created us to be. And that's not a gender issue. That's a human being problem. We think to ourselves, oh, if I was skinnier, if I was bigger, if I was taller, if I was shorter, if I wasn't like this, if I wasn't so uh, light-skinned, if I wasn't this, if I wasn't that, and we begin to be dissatisfied with who God's created us to be, and that causes problems and it breeds confusion. And I begin to think, oh, if I was only X, you know, I would be better. But we fail to embrace who God has created us to be. At Huikala, we place a lot of time, energy, and resources into building men. I think it's critical because if we are a church with wimpy, effeminate men that cower at the idea of leading, that are not interested in the things of God, just know this, you can just board this place up and move on. It's not to say the women of our church are not important. It's just the role that God gives to men is that we lead. And so if we can build up in our church a solid army of men who love Jesus, who love their family, who love God's word, who love Jesus' church, hey, look, the ladies will take care of themselves, I guarantee you that. 
The families will take care of themselves. I guarantee you that. Our church will be stronger as a result. I guarantee you that. Our church will be spiritually strong. I guarantee if men will embrace their role. But you know what the strange thing is today in America? Men don't want to embrace their role. They go to two churches that are led by female pastors. That's not a knock on anybody. It's just biblically wrong. You read 1 Timothy chapter 2, a woman should not teach men or have authority. It's just in the Bible. You see 1 Timothy 3, the first qualification of a pastor is he's the husband of one wife. That's just biblical. I'm not trying to be mean or judgmental or say that we're the only ones that are right. I'm just saying it's not biblical, simple as that. But guys, go to churches that are led by female worship pastors, that are, that are preached with female worship pastors, and all the committees are run by uh, women, and men just are happy to take the back seat and, and, and sit back and scroll their sports scores in the back until it's over, and they've endured uh, church for the, the week, and they get to go home and do what they want to do. Friend, that's not biblical leadership. And churches like that have little to no impact for the kingdom of God because they're not following God's design. That's the whole idea behind this, is that we would follow God's plan, follow God's design. And we believe at Huikala that if we build men, our homes will be different, our workplaces will be different, our communities will be different, and the world will be different if we can be the men that God's called us to be. Now, some ladies are getting really uncomfortable because you're like, oh, you're saying it's all about the guys. We're getting to you next week. Just hang on, I promise you. Next week, we're going to talk about how incredibly, critically important you are to the family and to the cause of Christ. But today, I'm talking to guys. Men, you have an impact. And, and here's the thing, too. There, there might be some single guys that are out here today or even single ladies that are sitting out here today going, I'm not married. This doesn't really apply to me. Hopefully, in, you know, in, in three weeks, we can move on to you know, Ephesians 6 and talk about the armor of God. Hey, look, here's the thing you need to know. First of all, if you're a single adult here today, know this. Fellas, you want to be a man of God. That's what you want. That's what you crave in the depths of your soul. You might be sitting here and go, I don't really want that. Trust me, it's everything that your heart desires is to walk with Jesus and be a man of God. And so I want to encourage you to be a man of God. Ladies, what you are looking for in a man that you would want to spend the rest of your life with, you're not looking for a dude that goes to church sometimes. You are looking for a man of God. That's what your heart desires and craves should you desire to be married. And I'm just telling you this, ladies, if you marry a guy who casually attends church and is not interested in the things of God, you will never see the fruitfulness that your marriage was intended to bring. Because again, it goes back to God's design, simple as that. So single guys, hear today's message and figure out how you need to apply this to be the man that God's created you to be. And I've I've met so many single adults and the number one advice that I have for single adults, number one, don't look for the right person. Focus on being the right person. Because men of God attract women of God. And women of God attract men of God. And that's the all you need to worry about. Just focus on being the right person and God will bring the right person if and when it's his time. Simple as that. So there's nobody today that gets a pass, that gets to check out of this message and say, oh, this doesn't apply to me. This totally applies to you. If you're a teenager, you need to take copious notes because one of these days, you're gonna be looking for a man or woman of God and you need to know what that looks like and be able to pick it out. Now, as we look at this, we need to understand, first of all, if we do not understand the idea of biblical headship, this entire message will leave you angry and frustrated. 
But if you understand what biblical headship looks like, ladies, it should bring great comfort to your heart. Men, it should stoke a fire in your belly to give you a burning desire to be everything that God has created you to be. That's the idea behind this. We have to understand what biblical headship is not. First of all, biblical headship is not being the boss. There are many things in our home that my wife is far more qualified to do than I am. And so it's not about me being in charge of everything. It's not that I get to determine what's for dinner. I get to determine where we're going for dinner. I get to determine where we go on family vacation. I get to be the boss of this. There are many times that I defer to my wife. Hey, do whatever you want, 100% support you, whatever you decide to do. Biblical headship is not calling the shots. We talked about this last week. If you have to go around telling people that you're in charge... You're not really in charge. If I have to say to my wife, hey, I'm the head of this house. You need to submit. I'm not the head of my house, guaranteed. And so it's not about being the boss. It's not about calling the shots. Biblical headship is not about having your way, that everything has to be done exactly the way that my husband says, otherwise he's gonna get angry. It's not about having your way in everything. Biblical headship is also not domination. Again, a hierarchical view of this is wrong as well, that the husband's up on top and the wife's on the bottom, that the the male gender is superior and the the female gender is inferior. Not inferior versus superior. Different roles, different responsibilities, different functions that we have. Biblical headship is not, this is really important, demeaning. When people have a skewed view of what biblical headship is, they think it's old-fashioned, like dad sits in the recliner and smokes a pipe and reads the newspaper while mom bakes chocolate chip cookies in in the kitchen. And he says, hey, whenever you're done with those cookies, bring me some. And she brings them over, and he's like, oh, those are too hot. Oh, where's my cold glass of milk? That's not biblical headship. That's not a healthy marriage. That's not God's plan. God's plan is not demeaning in some way. I've heard women before say, well, my husband feels like women should be seen and not heard. Your husband needs a lesson on biblical headship then. Your husband needs to read Ephesians chapter five then. Your husband is a jerk then. Simple as that. It's not the idea that the woman is in a lesser role. She's just in a different role. It's not that she's less important. She's equally as important. It's not that she has less value. She has I might even say this, she might have more value. It's about my role. It's about my responsibility, though. Male domination is not male headship. Male domination, male chauvinism has no place in the body of Christ. It has no place in a Christian home. Male domination demeans and depreciates the value of a woman. Women feel inferior inferior in a male domination relationship. That's incredibly unhealthy. It's incredibly unbiblical. If anything, a man should add value to his spouse. He should call out and appreciate the value of his spouse, not diminish it in any way. Male domination tears 
away the idea of mutual interdependence. Ephesians chapter uh, 5, verse number 21 that we talked about, submitting yourselves one to another, is the idea that we need each other to make this thing work. I need to love and serve and lead my wife, and she needs to love, serve, and submit to my leadership. That's what makes this whole thing work. And again, some of you, when you heard, my wife needs to submit to my leadership, you felt really awkward when I said that. That's a biblical precedent there. It's a biblical principle. We're gonna unpack all of that and what it looks like this week and next. But you don't have to feel awkward about it. Male domination creates a culture of rape, pornography, and prostitution because women exist to serve men and serve their purposes. This is one of the most disgusting things that has happened in our society today. An infatuation with pornography, sexual deviance. It disgusts me as I study the effects of pornography on our society today, the things that I read, that there's such a thing as violence pornography. How does someone get sexually aroused by a woman being violently abused? That doesn't even make sense to me. I can't process that. But that's what happens when we have a male domination mindset. We have an idea that I can spend 100 bucks and get a girl to spend a couple of hours with me and meet my needs, and then I cast her off because she's of no more value to me. And we live in a society today that says, that's okay. We live in a society today that says, maybe we should legalize prostitution. I mean, we've legalized marijuana smoking, or we've legalized uh, you know, all types of other things. We should just legalize prostitution. At least we could get tax revenue off of it, right? Excuse me? This is not a behavior to be sanctioned. This is a symptom of a much greater problem that our society has. And when we, here's the thing, I want you to get this. When we normalize pornography, when we normalize the sexualization of women in every aspect, we diminish a woman's true value. And it's sick. My wife said something really powerful. She's, she's again, way smarter than I am on stuff like this. Several weeks ago with the uh, uh, abortion law that got passed, I believe it was in Georgia, uh, that they passed a law that the, you know, they weren't going to allow people to have abortions after a heartbeat had been heard. Uh, Alyssa Milano, uh, uh, actress, came out and, and submitted a tweet that said that we're no longer going to have sex. She's going on a sex boycott until women can do what they want with their own babies. And she encouraged other people to join in with her in her sex boycott until they had full power over their own bodies. I, I read the news article and I thought to myself, well, if people will stop having sex outside of wedlock we won't have to have abortions. So we kill two birds with one stone. I'm great with that. Let's go for that. I hope she signs a lot of people up for that. And I looked at that and I thought, that's just foolishness. And I moved on. But my wife brought out a really solid point. And I, I chewed on it for a couple of days. She said, isn't it sad that a woman who is supposedly a woman of power and influence feels like the only card that she has to play at the table is not her, her knowledge, not her intellect, not her value, not her voice. The only card she has to play at the table is sex. And she goes, that's embarrassing to me as a woman, that the only way that I can get my way is to withhold sex from men. She goes, that's such a damaging message to send our society. 
And like, I was driving the car, I almost had to pull over. Like, I think my head just exploded. Like, that is so deep. I just looked at it and go, that's a bunch of Hollywood foolishness, move on, you know? But no, the idea that the only thing that women have to offer this society that they can withhold to get their way is sex. That demeans the value of women. It's disgusting. And, and just know this, pornography ruins lives, period. More than alcoholism, more than drug abuse, pornography rips apart marriages, and it doesn't care whether it's a Christian home or not. Let me just help you with this this morning. If you're looking at pornography, you need to stop and repent to God immediately because it's adultery, it's a sin, it's a crime against God, it's a crime against your own body, it's a crime against your spouse or your future spouse, and it needs to just stop today because it will enslave you and ruin your life and lay waste to everything that you hold dear. I promise you that. But it's born out of male domination, the idea that men deserve to get their way. Male domination skews the image of how Jesus loves his church. This is the important part. Really, the whole passage here in Ephesians 5 is talking about how Jesus loves his church and husbands are the picture of who Jesus is and how he loves his church. Jesus doesn't tell his church to shut up and do what he says. He just doesn't. Jesus doesn't tell his, his church that it has no value to him that it just is one of the ways that he gets his way. Jesus doesn't tell the church that it just exists for whatever he wants to happen. No, he loves it. He cherishes it. He gave his life for it. And male domination completely, totally skews that. So we're, we are 100% vehemently against male domination in marriages. Period, end of story, because the Bible's against it. But what are we talking about this morning? I'm gonna give you four terms that basically are pretty much synonymous here that we need to latch on, especially if you're a dude. Mature masculinity. This is embracing your manhood for everything that God created you to be. I'm a man and I'm thankful to be a man. I wanna do manly stuff. I wanna, I wanna, I'd love to learn how to sew. I don't know how to sew. But you know what I would sew? I'd sell myself some leather chaps or something like that, you know? <laughs> now, I would wear jeans under them, so just dial it back a notch, okay? But, uh, like, the idea, like, I would make something manly out of it. You know, I'd make, like, one of those, like, motorcycle vests or something. Uh, but I think it'd be cool to learn how to sew. You know why? But that doesn't diminish my manliness. Hey, I know how to change the oil in my car. Does that make me a man? Nope. It makes me handy sometimes with a wrench. The little bathroom remodel project last night. Uh, if you ever decide to go to Lowe's on a holiday weekend, worst idea ever, uh, but just throwing that out there. Had a little bathroom renovation project I did last night. You know why? Because I'm the man. I enjoy doing stuff like that. But that's not mature masculinity. If my wife decides to pick up power tools and remodel our bathroom, that doesn't make her a dude. What makes me a mature man? We're gonna take a look at that this morning. Another phrase here that kind of describes the same thing, Christian manhood. We guys have men's leadership nights. It's usually on a Friday night, or usually about once a quarter or something like that. That's dudes getting together, being dudes, talking about how to be dudes. And we talk about mature masculinity and what, how men treat ladies. We talk about how we serve one another inside the church, how we serve Jesus in the church with our masculinity, with our manhood. Another thing that we're talking about this morning is spiritual leadership. 
I'm providing guidance and oversight, but not just in an administrative position, but in a spiritual position. I'm looking out for the spiritual well-being of my family. I'm looking out for the spiritual well-being of my children, and I'm, I'm paying close attention to their growth. Do you ever have a, a kid, you have to take the kid in and when it's born uh, every couple of weeks and they measure it, measure the head, measure the abdomen, measure the length, and put it on the scale, stuff like that. And they have all these well baby checkups, right? We as parents need to be doing well baby checkups from a spiritual perspective. Hey, how's your walk with God been? What are you reading in your Bible? What's something that you're struggling with? How can I pray for you this week? We need to be having regular checkups. That's what spiritual leadership looks like. This term we're talking about this morning, biblical headship. All four of these could be synonymous. And when you take things like spiritual leadership, that's not necessarily uh, exclusive to guys. Biblical headship is, though. That's exclusive to men. It's our responsibility to do that. But I want, at Who We Call a Baptist Church, a strong desire for our men to be men of God. Burning desire that I have in my, the depths of my soul. And when we have Friday night's men's leaderships, we don't just like, hey, we should get a bunch of dudes together and have hot dogs and, and talk. No, the whole goal is to help men be men. When we have our men's conferences that we have, we had one uh, this past spring, we're having another one in September. Why do we have men's conferences? To help men embrace their manhood. The whole idea behind this. Mature masculinity expresses itself not in the demand to be served, but in the strength to serve and sacrifice for the good of woman. I'll let you guys, uh, I'll just be transparent with you this morning. I don't like to put all of our business out there all the time, but last night I've been doing my little bathroom remodel project and there were dishes in the sink and my wife was washing the dishes. Some people say, oh, that's good for a good place for a woman to be in the kitchen. You, sir, are a jerk. And I said to my wife, why are you washing dishes? She said, because they're dirty. And I said, we have two boys that live in our house that could gladly do that. Let them take care of that for you, sweetheart. And one of them said, I just washed dishes this morning. <laughs> Great. Your mom just did laundry yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. Well, I already did dishes. Do them again. What is that? That's biblical headship. I wasn't telling my wife to do the dishes. Like, oh no, sweetheart, let me get the dishes taken care of for you. <laughs> right? That's the idea. The idea here is not that my needs would be met, but I would find a way to meet the needs of everyone around me. That's the job of the husband. I'm making sure that everybody's AJ squared away. They have what they need so that they can fulfill the job that God's given them to do. That's my job. It's not about what can I get from this. It's about what can I give to it. It's not about being served. It's about me serving and sacrificing for the well-being of our home. That's the idea behind biblical headship. Mature masculinity is not about rights and power, but about responsibility and sacrifice. It's not about who's in charge. It's not about who holds all the power. It's about making sure that my family's needs are met. It's about, this is gonna sound heavy, but it, and it is heavy. It's about me laying down my life for my family. 
That's what biblical headship is. You know why? Because the example of that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ laid down his life for the church. And that's a picture of how husbands should sacrifice for the well-being of their family. Biblical headship makes the man primarily and ultimately responsible for three key areas. I say primarily and ultimately because the wife can share some of these roles, but at the end of the day, the buck stops here with the husband. The first of these is Christ-like servant leadership. Primarily and ultimately responsible for the Christ-like leadership of the home. That means I gotta be like Jesus. Now, can my wife be like Jesus for sure? Can she make sure that our family's headed the right direction? No doubt about it. But at the end of the day, any failures rest completely and totally on my shoulders because it's my job to provide leadership and headship in our home. Hey, if my kids, if I get a call from the school and the teacher says, we're having problems with your son or daughter misbehaving in class, you know whose responsibility is to take care of that? Me. Now, can my wife give the kids a talking to on the way home from school? No doubt about it. But my wife, I guarantee you, will say the words that no kid ever wants to hear. Just wait until your dad gets home. Nobody wants to hear that. And my wife can provide Christ-like servant leadership in some way, that's for sure. But at the end of the day, ultimately and primarily, the responsibility is mine. And if I have a child that grows up that doesn't love Jesus, that doesn't want to follow Jesus, that doesn't want to, to do things the right way, there's one person that's responsible for that, and that's me. Because the leadership was my fault. Now, understand me today. If you have a wayward child, it's not always your fault. The kid had to make a decision for himself at some point in their life. But I am responsible for leading. At the end of the day, the buck stops here. If there's a need in our family, I'm going to take care of it, whatever that need might be. But I'm going to provide the leadership that my family needs because I am ultimately responsible to God for that. I'll stand before God. Men, you will stand before God one day for your family and have to tell God what you did with what he gave you. That should be a sobering thought. But I want men of this church to have a vision for your family. I want you to figure out where this whole thing's going. How can I get my kids one day to love and serve Jesus all the days of their life? How can I do that? I want to have a vision to make that happen. My daughter, Tulu, she's 18 months old. She'll probably start dating when she's 40. I'll lift my ban at that point, right? But how do I make sure that my daughter, Tulula, and how do I make sure that my daughter, Makili, one day grow up to first of all, be women of God, and secondly, be attracted to men of God. It doesn't happen by accident. It's not gonna happen by just going with the flow with what the world offers today. Hey, these days, a guy would be considered a good candidate if he's not a meth addict and hasn't been locked up six or seven times. Hey, he's single, and he has a job sometimes. And I think he went to church that one time. He must be a great candidate. I want my daughters to go, no. I want a man of God. I'm willing to wait for as long as that takes. I'm not going to take second best because I'm not second best. 
I'm a woman of God who deserves a man of God, and I'll just hang tight and wait until he comes around. Now, if that's my vision for my kids, how are they going to get there? I got to have a plan to get them there. And I have to lead them that direction. My daughter McKeeley's in fourth grade. I have to explain to her, hey, that kid at school, don't spend time with him. He's not good. He's always getting in trouble. Well, well, Dad, I don't do anything wrong. I know. But if you're with the kids that are always getting in trouble, people automatically assume that you're the one getting in trouble. And the more that you're around trouble and you don't see a problem with it, you become desensitized to trouble. And you'll begin making trouble and you won't even realize it. You'll just think it's normal. You say that to a fourth grader? Absolutely. Why? Because I'm guiding her. I'm training her. I'm providing leadership. You know why? Because that's my job. It would be really easy just to pick my daughter up from school. Hey, how was school today? Good. Great. You got homework? Good. Your mom can do it with you. Ah. And go on. That would be easy. But you know what? That's abdicating my responsibility as the head of my home. I want you to have a vision for your kids. I want them to pray with them, men. I want you to, to pray, not just at mealtime, but at bedtime. And if you're not doing it right now, it's going to be awkward the first time you do it. I get that. I remember Thatcher was probably nine years old, and we had, uh, we'd failed in many areas as far as Christian leadership went in his life. And I heard a pastor say, you need to be praying with the kids every night before they go to bed. All right, fine. I'm going to do it. And praise God that I had a teachable spirit at that point. I didn't when, I, when Angela and I first got started. I, I just knew it all, you know. But praise God that I had a teachable spirit that the pastor said, you need to pray with your kids, and I just did it. I remember it was weird that first night I went into Thatcher's room and said, hey, bud, we're going to pray before you go to bed. And he goes, what did I do? <laughs> you didn't do anything, bud. I said, just want to pray before bedtime. Next question, is somebody sick? No, nobody's sick. Then why are we praying? Great question, son. You see, mom and dad should have been praying with you every night, but we didn't, and I'm sorry for that. But from now on, we're going to. Nothing's wrong. We just need to pray. The Bible says we should pray without ceasing. You know what that means? It means don't ever stop praying. So we're just going to pray before bedtime. Are you okay? No lie. Like six months later, I'd be like, that's go to bed. I can't go to bed yet. Yes, you can. No, I can't. We haven't prayed yet. It's just like, oh, yeah. All right, got it. Yeah, good reminder. And you know what? It was hard at first, but it paid dividends. And you know what? He, he turns 25 next month. I'm still trying to provide Christ-like leadership in his life. You know why? Because it's my job. And, I, and I, never get to I never finish that job. Until the day that I die, I'm going to be providing Christ-like leadership for him, for my wife, for my children, because that's the responsibility of the head of a home. Secondly, it's my job to provide protection. Not only leadership, but also protection. That means I'm going to give them a safe place to sleep at night. If something goes bump in the night, I don't nudge my wife and tell her to get up and see what that was. When my wife says, I'm scared, I don't say, just go back to bed, you'll get over it. I say that because I've said it before, but I don't anymore, right? But the idea is that I provide protection. When my wife feels scared, when my kids feel uh, scared, it's my job to make sure that I set those fears aside. And I do whatever I gotta do to protect my family. 
But it doesn't stop at physical protection. You want to protect my kids if somebody comes at us on the street or something like that? That's fine. You know, I know how to, to handle myself. If I should get into an altercation, that's fine. That's good physical protection. But I want to protect them emotionally and spiritually as well. That's critical. That's my job. I need to know what my kids are doing on the iPad. What are you doing? I'm watching this show. What show? What's it about? Take your headphones out so I can watch it. What game are you playing and who are you playing with? I need to know this. Hey, I heard a word that I don't ever want to hear in this house ever again on that video game and you need to take that video game, delete it, bust the disc, or I will bust the entire Xbox. Are we clear? That's protection. I'm protecting my kids. And I hate it when people say, well, they're gonna hear those things when they get out in the world anyways. That's fine. I don't want to add to it in my own home. I don't want to defile my own home with the garbage of this world. I want my home to be a safe place from the junk that's in the world. But to do that, I have to take that job of protection very seriously, emotionally protecting them. I've got to emotionally protect my boys. I've got to emotionally protect my daughters. I've got to emotionally protect my wife. I've got to spiritually protect them. Hey, I know that guy that you're listening to is really funny on, on the radio, but his teaching is not biblically sound, and so don't listen to that anymore. I know that song you like is really catchy and cool, but it's not a song that pleases the Lord. Don't ever listen to that again. That's my job. And again, can my wife say those things? Definitely, and she definitely does. But at the end of the day, the ultimate responsibility lies with me. Christ-like servant leadership, protection, provision making sure that my family is cared for. Hey, if our bills don't get paid this month, you know whose fault that is? That's mine. I've heard guys say, well, she, she's always running up our charge cards. Then it's your job to take them away. Because at the end of the day, if you can't pay your bills, it's the husband's fault. That's what the Bible says. That's what being the head of your home is. There's food on the table. The bills are paid. We are in a good position. I'm taking care of my family. And I get it. Sometimes people go through different phases of life where, you know, uh, you know I just got out of the military and transition and stuff like that. I get people go through transitions and stuff like that, and things might be different for a, a brief period of time. But it's not God's plan long term that the husband doesn't provide. That's his God-given responsibility. If you're not doing that, you're not doing things biblically. And when we... Don't embrace our God-given gender roles that breeds confusion, bottom line. So at the end of the day, my responsibility for leadership, protection, provision, that's what biblical headship means. And here's the great thing about godly male headship is it results in female nobility. Men, if you want to be treated like the king of the castle, start treating your wife like a queen. He says, I don't think I saw that on Instagram somewhere. That's fine. I don't care where you saw it. It's true. <laughs> Legit. It's true. Hey, here's the thing. I want my wife to feel like being a woman is one of the greatest things that she could ever possibly have. I want to create an environment where she is able to embrace her God-given femininity and revel and celebrate in the idea of being a woman of God, a wife, and a mother, like it's the best job anybody could ever have. I just want to be 
your wife. I just want to be a mom. I just want to be a woman. And her just enjoy that. That's what happens when godly male headship rules the home. It's not that she hates being a woman because all she has to do is stay home and cook and clean and, and make sandwiches. If that's what you view the female role as, you, you don't have godly male headship in your home. But the idea is that it would cause her to love and value herself. Proverbs 31, verse number 10 says, who a virtuous woman who can find her for her price is far above rubies. Hey, men, if you've got a good wife, you need to tell her that like six times a week probably because the Bible says if you found a faithful woman, her price is high above the price of rubies. You couldn't, you couldn't afford someone to, do, to fulfill that role. Godly male headship also results in the wife's fulfillment. Favor is deceitful, Proverbs 31 says, and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. You know what, my wife, if I'm doing my job right, she doesn't desire to, to have a career that fulfills her. And again, if, if ladies are pursuing a career, that's fine. But if you're looking for your fulfillment as a woman in your career, you're looking in the wrong place if you're, if you're a woman and you're married to a man. Simple as that. It's my job to make sure that my wife has fulfillment. Hey, if she wants to go get a job, she's welcome to go do that. I'm not gonna stop her from doing that. But if she's going to do it to find her fulfillment as a woman, that means I haven't done my job as a man. If she's looking for fulfillment in a hobby to make her really feel like a woman or feel like she matters or to feel valued, I failed as a biblical head of my home. She should say, I am greatly fulfilled in my role in our marriage, in our home, because you have made me feel that way. Godly male headship results in a wife's joy. Again, when we follow God's design, the wife and the husband both find the greatest joy and fulfillment in life. Next. If I'm called to lead like Jesus, I have to live like Jesus. Here's the thing. Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is loving. Jesus is sacrificial. And if I'm called to lead my wife the way that Jesus leads his church, I have to be like Jesus. Simple as that. Trustworthy, faithful, loving, sacrificial. Here's the thing. I want to make it easy and joyful for my wife to follow my leadership. I want her to say, I enjoy you being in charge. I enjoy you being the head of our home. I enjoy following your leadership. You make following Jesus really easy because I know that you love me, you care for me, you sacrifice for me, you provide for me. And I know at the end of the day, you're looking out for my best interest and it makes it really easy to follow your leadership. That's the idea behind this is that I would lead like that in such a way I'm going to give you eight final ways, men, to live out your biblical headship. And again, these can apply even to, to single men, most of them as well. First of all, walk with Jesus. You are in no business to be the head of anything if you're not walking with Jesus. Every single day, in the word, in prayer, in church, worshiping, praising, 
24-7. Secondly, pray with your wife. Again, if you've never done this before, it's going to be awkward. Just suck up the awkwardness and get through it. Many wives have never heard their husband pray before. There's times where my wife and I pray that I pray for stuff, and when we get done, she was like, I didn't know that was on your heart. I didn't know that was something you were praying for, and it's going to help me to pray for you more as a result of it. Thirdly, seek her wisdom. I never make any major decision in our life without talking with my wife first, not because I'm henpecked or I need her permission or she's got to sign off for approval, because she has a wisdom that I don't have, and I greatly desire her wisdom. And just about every single time I've blown off her wisdom to do what I wanted to do, just about every time it's blown up in my face. Just about every time. And praise God I have a wife that doesn't say, I told you so. You know what she says? Hey, we'll get through this. We always do. No sweat. We got this. She never brings it back and throws it in my face. But now I've learned, I always want to seek her wisdom. Next, encourage her spirit. I want to love her. I want to encourage her. I want to pray with her. I want her to be spiritually encouraged. Hey, sweetheart, I read this verse today and I thought of you. Hey, I was reading through Proverbs 31 and this thing jumped off the page at me and how blessed I am to be married to you. Encourage your spirit. I have to admit, early on in our marriage, again, I didn't have any type of guidance or premarital counseling or anything like that. Came time to go to church on Sunday mornings. We made a decision that we were going to be in church every time the doors were open. Sunday morning rolls around. We have to leave the house by 10 o'clock. We're leaving at 10 o'clock. You got to be ready. Okay, fine. What do I do? I get up at 9.55. You know why? Because I need five minutes to get in the car. It's all it'll take me. Get up, throw some water in my hair, walk out the front door. It's not that big of a deal. The problem is we had a son who was five who needed help, who needed breakfast, who needed his clothes ironed. It took my wife more than five minutes to get ready. That's for sure. Um, but me, I'd get up five minutes before we left, and I'd go sit in the car and honk the horn. Because that always makes people hurry up, right? Always. It'd take her forever. And she said, you know, I could use some help in the morning. Help. What? I work all week. Sunday's my day that I get to relax. I got to help you. And you know she said, when do I get a day off? Hmm. Valid question. So you know what we decided to do? Start doing it as a team. Whoa. That's a crazy thought, isn't it? And you know what? You know who's ultimately responsible for getting the family to church on time in one piece? You know whose responsibility that is now? Me. You know whose responsibility has been for the last 20 years? Me. You know why? Because I'm the head. And if our family doesn't show up in church, and if our family doesn't show up in church on time with the right attitude, you know whose fault that is? Mine. You know why? Because I'm the head, and I want to do everything I can to encourage her spirit. Next, love her heart. I want to love the things that she loves. I want to love her. I want to romance her heart. I want to pour into her spirit. I want to pour into her emotionally. Next, serve her joyfully. I'm going to help with things around the house. I think it's dumb to make the bed because I'm just going to get in it in about 12 more hours. And it's a waste of time. But you know what? It's a big deal to her. So you know what I do in the morning when I get up? I make my bed. Why? Because it's important to her. I want to encourage her. I want to serve her. I want to do it with joy. I don't get up and go, did you see what I did in there? Huh? You see that? Yeah? Yeah? What do you want? You want a cookie? You want a gold star? You made your bed. Congratulations. No, I do it with joy, and I don't even have to say anything. 
You know, she says sometimes, I noticed you made the bed this morning. It's like, meh, my pleasure. Glad to help. Want to do my part. You know why? Because I'm the head. It's my responsibility to love her heart, to serve her, shoulder the burden. If my wife's carrying a burden, I want to take that off of her. If the kids have been unruly, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sit the kids down and have a talk, and that burden comes off of her, and it now goes to me. If there's discipline that needs to be done, and I'm around, I'm going to take care of it. You know why? Because I carry the burden. If our finances are a wreck, it's my fault, and I'm going to carry the burden for of it. For it. If I need to go through Financial Peace University, if I need to talk to you, a, a, a financial coach is going to help me to put together a budget, I'm going to do that. I'm going to make sure we stay on point because it's my responsibility. I'm taking the burden back. If the bills aren't getting paid, it's my fault, and they're going to get paid from here on out because I'm the man. I shoulder the burden. I take that off of my wife whenever I can. Number eight, walk with Jesus. You say, you already said that. Yeah, I know. This is the sandwich here, right? The top and the bottom. It's the first thing you do. It's the last thing you do. Walk with Jesus. And gentlemen, you'll find it's very easy for your wife to follow your loving, serving leadership if, and submit to you if she knows that you're walking with Jesus and you love her like no one else. Very easy to do. We've got to do our part. Most important thing in the world is if you don't hear today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, you're not 100% sure when you die that heaven's your home, please don't leave here without knowing for sure that your sins are forgiven and that you are saved. All the rest is just details. Like, like seriously, what we talked about today is the icing on the cake. If you don't know Christ as Savior, you don't even have a cake. You need to know Jesus. You need to know that you're saved. You need to know that you're forgiven. Then we can work on everything else that flows from a right relationship with God. For those of us that are saved, if you're a husband, step into your role joyfully this week. Be willing to say to your wife, hey, I'm the man this week. I got you. We're gonna walk through this together. Be willing to, to love and serve. Wives, be willing to allow your husband to step out and lead. Encourage his heart as he tries to take steps to be the man that God's called him to be. Single adults, be a man of God. If you're a woman, be a woman of God. Be who you need to be and God will take care of the rest.